0: Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beter, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts.
1: Today is former greyhound trainer Dennis McKeon who will be discussing greyhound culture, popular greyhound mythology, and how these have an an inhibited effect on adopters when they try to cope with many perfectly understandable behaviors that they encounter with their adopted ex-racing greyhounds. While Dennis is currently very well known as an online resource for the Greyhound racing and adoption community, via social media, some of our regular listeners may be interested to know that Dennis is a native New Yorker who, as a kidlet, was fascinated by horses as far back as he can remember, and often more interested in reading the daily racing form than school books. Uh-oh. When his family moved to Massachusetts, where he still resides, Dennis became entranced with greyhounds and greyhound racing. Always having a sixth sense for the dogs, it was a natural for Dennis to become a greyhound trainer. He left the sport after a trainer strike in 1985, but continued to follow greyhound racing and greyhounds, and we're glad that he did. Uh, we'll be bringing our guest Dennis McKeon on in just a bit, but right now I'm going to toss it over to our Greyhounds Make Great Pets hosts Rory Gorey and T.J.
2: Beater. Hey, how we doing? Well, I'm doing okay. Oh, T.J. Hi there. Hey. hey, long time no see, huh?
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been so long. <laughs> hey, what were you guys? Wonderful week in Abilene, Kansas, though, huh?
2: Uh, yeah, that was. Um, anyone who has not done that trip they should give it some some serious consideration because there's a lot to learn uh, about the greyhounds and how they're raised um i the just hall of Fame. the hall of fame is there but uh, but as far as getting to know the dogs I, you know talking to the few of the farmers there you get a invaluable lesson in, as to how, why your dog is a great pet i believe And I
3: totally agree. Um, I call this my little slice of, of heaven on earth. That's what I refer to Abilene, Kansas as. So I <laughs> totally agree with everything you're saying.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back out there sometime. And maybe the next time, because I know, Tanya, when you left, you were taking a greyhound back home with you, and then Kathy and I were bringing uh, Greyhounds my Great Pets, newest Arizona fan, little Miss Sadie, back to Arizona. Maybe next time we'll we can fly there and not have to, you know, Worry about bringing a dog, dogs home.
3: <laughs> maybe not, but the one, the one that I did bring home is doing absolutely wonderfully. I uh, couldn't ask for a, a better addition to my
2: pack here at home. And you know that's probably something I would, I think, when we get Dennis on here, he can maybe tell us a little bit about. But we both have had experience with either a bringing the dog straight off the track or bringing the dog straight off the um, farm, and they're great pets. Why?
3: Absolutely, they are, and I think a lot of it has to do with educating yourself, understanding the things that you um, can absorb from people who have worked with the Greyhound before it's passed along to you. So I'm I'm so excited to have Dennis on the show today because I think he can enlighten everyone. Um, I always learn something new from him. So uh, it's going to be an exciting show, I
2: believe. Exactly, and, and uh, Dennis is—I've known Dennis for a number of years—and he's actually helped me and Kathy out with um, with our own pack at home, and has helped us uh, strengthen that bond, and has given me some great advice. Um, so, Dennis, uh, welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets.
4: Hi, Rory. Hi,
1: Kathy. Hi, TJ.
2: Well, I hope you can hear me. Oh, we, we can hear you. If we, you
1: can't hear us, just let us know, okay? Yeah.
2: Just, just I raise can hear you. just, yeah. just raise your hand, and we'll hear you. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, so, Dennis, what is probably the one biggest uh, thing you hear people say about greyhounds uh, out there that you think is just, just so ridiculous? Uh, I'm not sure
4: there's one <laughs> single thing you can say that is ridiculous. Top five. <laughs> I mean, there is a litany of ridiculous stuff that's been put out there by people who have no conception of what a greyhound's everyday, day-to-day life is like, and it's been sold to the public as the god's honest truth. And of course, they have no way of knowing what a dog feels like when and what he does when he's racing, and the public buys it because they they're suckers for sympathy. You know, they want to. Find some, a cause. They want to find something to pity. And uh, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that the greyhound himself, and this is all, true almost across the board, is perfectly happy and content doing exactly what he was meant to do, what he was bred to do, and what they've been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the fact that greyhounds, when they're raised in a colonial pack, Situation like greyhounds are, they don't react to your preconceptions of what it is they need because they have an immense amount of support from one another within the security and the dynamic of the pack or the colony. And of course, adopters have no way of knowing that because they've been fed this nonsense from people who are just not, have no standing to be saying what they say and promoting what they promote. The, the reason greyhounds make such great pets is because of their breeding, because of their bloodlines, because of their handling, because of their function, because of their environment, and because of their experience. That's the way all dogs operate. That's how dogs work. If a dog is a uh, is a biter, we don't say, oh, that's because the dog was, was a naturally bad dog. No, we say that's because how he was handled. And he was not Disciplined properly when he was young, he wasn't trained properly. Same thing with greyhounds; they make great pets because they've learned to interact well with not only other dogs but with the humans who take care of them. And that's a tr- true for the vast majority of greyhounds, and something that the public has to understand.
2: Exactly, and no, you just hit on something there. We we hear all the time that these these greyhounds are not socialized; they're not getting. Uh, interaction with humans, and I know, T.J., we've all witnessed it, that that's that's just false, but could you kind of walk us through a little bit of the socialization, the interaction that the greyhounds would get with uh, humans before they even get to the adoption home?
4: Well, when they're young, you know, they have to be trained to walk on leads, they have to be trained to stand for inspection, they have to be trained to work almost like a team because you don't have time to uh, fiddle about when you've got, you know, twenty-four dogs to school in the morning, and you've got an hour or so to do that. So you, they have to be very merry and very accepting of inspection, of handling, of grooming, of massaging, of rubbing down, of training, and getting to uh, from and to where you're going. And uh, there's not a, a a whole lot of mystery to that. It's just a matter of handling when they're young and training them right up through every phase of their lives, uh, not only on the farm, but at the finishing facility and then in the racing kennel. In the old days, it wasn't always like that. You had a lot of, uh, a lot of breeders, I'm talking back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, who, uh, you know, the dogs were you know, they were dual-purpose dogs. They they coursed after live game before they went to the track, and uh, they were a little bit less socialized than they are today. And I think a lot of the socialization that we see in Greyhounds, which, uh, you know, wasn't always the case, is because there are a lot more women in the workforce now, and I think that's always... You know, been something that was up to uh, maybe the 70s was not always the case. There were guys. I remember lots of real time trainers who would not have a woman in the kennel because, according to them, she'll turn them into pets, and that was you know <laughs> that was not a good thing apparently. But I think the fact that maybe there are more women involved now than men, and uh, I think that's done a lot to improve the uh, the social uh, capability of greyhounds. Uh, not only in the kennels, but when they leave the kennels and go into an adoptive home. And I think that uh, the, the case is, is is pretty much made by how many people are waiting to adopt greyhounds now. You know, apparently there aren't enough to go around. There are so many people who want them. So I don't know what more you can do other than confusing socialization with habituation to life outside of what the greyhound has been used to for his whole life. Now, that's often the case with adopters, they 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 mix up what socialization and habituation are. And a greyhound I know you guys know this, but for those who don't know, there are no dogs who are better at getting along with one another than greyhounds are. They're extremely well socialized, especially within the confines of the colony or the pack, there maybe foxhounds would be the only comparable uh, population that could, uh, could stand with a greyhound as far as their level of socialization. When greyhounds have trouble with other dogs, it's usually because the other dog is not as well socialized and not as well schooled in uh, canine communications, in signaling, and in manners and in how to behave and a lot of times people will say my greyhound doesn't like other dogs. That's because your greyhound senses automatically instinctively that that dog doesn't communicate on the same level as he's used to having other dogs communicate with.
2: So, so we, should we get bumper stickers, my dog smarter than yours?
4: <laughs> yeah, but my dog is more socially adept.
2: Yeah, there we go. Horse. New bumper sticker. There you go. And I, and I just wanted to add because I'm sure TJ may have something but I just want to so far add Everything Dennis has said, anyone can observe firsthand if they were to visit a track, if they were to visit a farm. It's all there for people to actually see with their own eyes. You don't have to listen to these radical nutcases that are wanting to end racing. The facts are right there for everyone to see and learn from.
3: I do agree with that, and, um, and it's not just Greyhound Racing that, that they want to end, but that's uh, perhaps a whole other segment that we can do at a later date. Um, I did want to touch on something with Dennis, and, and I have as well bent his ear more than once uh, with a Greyhound question or two, and that's even after two decades of doing this myself, so I always know I can get a, a nice, straightforward, and common-sense answer from him. That makes sense. Dennis, you just mentioned what the the greyhounds were doing um, back in the 30s, 40s, and and well before as far as, um, you know, coursing and hunting live game. Could you, since you're such a great historian, could you give a little bit of a background, particularly for the American listeners? We could delve much further back than that, I realize. But how did the greyhound come over here, and for what reason?
4: Well, as far as I know, the greyhound came over here, the earliest greyhounds came over here with the Spaniards, uh, with the conquistadors. But later on, there were importations into mainland Amer- into the United States of America, North America, and they were brought over here to control jackrabbits, which were a uh, pestilence to farmers in the early days of this country. And uh, it's a pretty well known fact that General George Custer who uh, is famous for his last stand and uh, was uh, actually a very uh, good general for the Union in the Civil War. Uh, He he was a a keeper of greyhounds and what what we would call today long dogs, greyhound crosses, and he had a a lot of them that traveled around with him on his military campaigns. And, uh, you know, they were very popular with rural and agrarian people, and greyhound racing sprung up from rural roots. This is not some elite thing that people did like they did in England when, you know, they had the forest laws where only only royalty could own lords and the dukes could own greyhounds. It wasn't like that. The common man owned greyhounds out in the rural agrarian Midwest and West, and they were there specifically to take care of jackrabbits and other pests. But Jackrabbits were a real problem for farmers in those days. And that's how the greyhound came to be a staple in the uh, American lexicon of dogs.
2: That's pretty amazing. Um, I know years ago, um, and Dennis, you were around early on when greyhound adoption kind of really took off, and I don't think people know how and who really was behind the effort to start getting these dogs into homes can you kind of tell us a little bit about that early early movement and who was involved well
4: i personally knew the first individual who in massachusetts began to question what was going on after racing with greyhounds when she found out that and she didn't know this until somebody told her that most Grounds, the ones that weren't going to be used for breeding, were humanely disposed of after raising, and sometimes not so humanely disposed of. And uh, she, she was aghast when she heard it. Her name was Joan Dillon. And uh, I had raised a couple of litters for her on a small farm in Taunton. And uh, she uh, decided that she was going to make it her life's calling to change that. And right about at the same time when she first became aware of that, this track at Seabrook, who was managed by a, a man named Ed Keelan, who was a real visionary and forward thinker, opened up an adoption kennel on the grounds. And concurrently with that, somebody in Florida, a guy named Ron Walsek, formed what he called REGAP, which is retired greyhounds as pets. And that he was a kennel hand and a farm hand, and he started adopting pets you know, uh, you know, and did it as a formal process where they would screen the applicants and not just give them to friends. Because, I mean, that was always done. People would give dogs to, pe- uh, to friends of theirs. Oh, I want a greyhound. And that didn't always work out. You know, when the greyhound would kill the little dog next door or the cat next door, it didn't always work out. And a lot of times the greyhounds would come back to the guy who gave them away. But in ReGAP, they set the template pretty much for what would become every other adoption group. They they were the pioneers, and that was a, a Greyhound kennel hand who uh, began that. And then a guy named John Furbush, who lived in Maine and who who raised Spartan's son, who won the Wonderland Derby in 1985, he began a ReGAP in New England. And then there were many other ReGAPs after that and not always run by people who were uh, amenable with racing, so it uh, it's the mixed there were mixed messages going to the public, and while at the same time there was a big push to outlaw the coursing of live game by greyhounds in states where they would be allowed to kill jackrabbits, and that that took center stage in the media, and what happened was people got the wrong idea about greyhounds because the activists who were trying to outlaw the coursing of live game, their their whole push, their whole uh, focus was that coursing live game made greyhounds vicious and bloodthirsty and that they wore muzzles because of it, which we know is not the case. And so while we, in racing, were trying to get greyhounds accepted as very good pr- prospective pets. You had the media trumpeting this nonsense from these jackrabbit crusaders that greyhounds were vicious and trained to kill and unreliable of temperament. And it was, it was very, very difficult. To, we didn't have an internet in those days. You didn't have any form of mass communication other than the newspaper or a, you know, a, a segment on the nightly local news. But more, almost all the publicity that the Greyhound got was that they were killers and bloodthirsty and not good prospective pets because of the jackrabbit thing. And so that inhibited the early adoption movements that formed within racing. And after Eddie Keelan opened the Seabrook Adoption Kennel, other tracks fell in line and started to have their own adoption kennels on grounds, and nobody made them do this. But, you know, the culture had changed, and at that time, baby boomers were getting into the business, people my age. And, you know, we were brought up on Disney and the fact that animals talk to one another and they had, they, they, they had human perceptions of everything. We couldn't understand how we could let this situation go on when we knew... Anybody who had been around Greyhounds knew they would make perfectly good pets as long as you explained to people what they were all about and educated them properly about how to handle a Greyhound. And so the process took a long, long time, as you know, of course, nobody knows that better than you, Rory and Kathy and TJ, uh, to get to where it is now. And it didn't happen by serendipity. It happened by hard work of people like you folks, GPA. And uh, the NGA and cooperating and building bridges instead of walls, like I always say, it's a lot easier to build bridges than walls. You don't have to agree on everything, but you can all agree that the dogs come first before our personal ideology and feelings about things. And that's pretty much the way it came about and evolved.
2: That's interesting. And for our listeners, uh, especially those who were in Abilene last week, uh, they saw a presentation of a trophy that every year there's names added to it, who is, are people who made a lasting co- contribution to greyhound adoption. And that trophy is actually named after Joan Dillon. Uh, when I put th- that trophy together, I think it was maybe 15 years ago, um, Joan was the person I wanted to recognize as who that trophy would be named after because of her early contribution to the Greyhound Adoption Movement. And Dennis, you are right. I call it something magical happened. And I think that magic happened from a lot of people um, working together, AGC, NGA, GPA, and many other Greyhound Adoption Programs. It was a wonderful, magical thing that happened. And unfortunately, we had to put up with a lot of crap getting through there, but everyone involved, great job. You've done wonders, even with all the Roadblocks that were being thrown up. Everybody worked great together to get it done, and I know I can't thank everyone enough for everything they did on that.
4: And and the Greyhounds themselves, you know. Yeah. They were such excellent ambassadors, and uh, you know nothing speaks louder than when somebody gets to meet a Greyhound up close and personal and sees what incredible dogs they are. I mean, there's just there's nothing quite like them. There's nothing that i have ever known no other breed that i've ever known that is uh quite had that mix of uh fur baby and feral killer (laughs) that it's very there's that feral streak in greyhounds that just just about lies right below that first layer of very thin skin and can uh demand to be let out at the slightest provocation and that's another thing that people have to be aware of when they adopt a greyhound you know you take them to the dog park and if they see a little fuzzy white dog running around uh, what they see is the ruler at the track often and uh, they may decide "Ooh, I gotta chase that that's what I'm supposed to do i <laughs> chase that thing
1: Hey, speaking of uh, being at the at the dog park, uh, it's going to be time for a quick turnout here at uh, Greyhounds Make Great Pets. So we will be right back with more of Dennis McKeon, our guest today, and more Rory and TJ and, oh, I'll pop in too. Uh, so we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back with more Greyhounds Make Great Pets.
5: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-List. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Do you understand your feline friends as well as you'd like? Why do they behave the way they do? If behavior issues get out of hand, how do you fix things get the answers and more when you listen to cat talk radio with host Molly DeVos we'll give you the straight facts offer some tried and tested ideas and alert you as to what's being done in this country and worldwide to save cats and shelter challenges cat talk radio
5: on voice America variety
0: On the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a pet parent? If so, you'll want to stay up to date on the latest tech gadgets and advances for your canine or feline friend. With a ton of apps, websites, tech toys, and more. You'll want to be in the know when it comes to the real treasures and the duds. For that information, listen for Pet Lover Geek with host Lorian Clemens. We test and discuss what's hot and what's not on the pet front so you'll be better informed on Voice America Variety.
5: Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? <laughs> Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies Handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Englehart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787.
3: Thank you for calling.
5: VoiceAmerica.com. we're listening
0: to greyhounds make great pets with rory tj and kathy to find out more about the show and what we do please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com that's gmgp3 at yahoo.com now back to greyhounds make great pets
1: And what a great show it is so far. Yeah, we have our guest, Dennis McKeon, today chatting all about greyhounds and helping uh, adopters understand the reasons their greyhounds make great pets and why and all this and that. But before we return, it's time for one of our favorite segments here at GMGP
2: what the hell i take safety seriously we have people's lives horses lives at risk and if, if we're not taking safety seriously what the hell and this is the what the hell segment you know I, i've been questioning why is it that people who haven't a clue how to raise train a greyhound or for that matter a horse are the experts that the media speaks with i have a clue for you all Give me a call. I'll put you in touch with some real experts regarding the adoption of, the raising, and training of, the care of, and some serious expertise when it comes to drug testing and regulation of horse and greyhound racing. Media, stop talking to those who are paid sorcerers You know, come and talk to somebody who knows really how to take care of these animals. Talk to people who really care about these animals. Talk to people who put sweat, blood, and tears into these animals. The public needs to hear from real experts. The public needs to hear the truth. Promoting propaganda that is pushed by people from organizations like PETA, who who kill a high rate of adoptable animals, is just doing the animals wrong. You want to do good, real stories, talk to the experts. Give me a call. I'll put you in the in contact with the experts. And that's my what the hell for this week.
1: Way to go. <laughs> All righty. get
2: him, Rory.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and if you want to uh, talk uh, to Rory, or if you have a question for our guest today, the phone lines at Voice America are open. So you can call us at 866-472-5787 or 5788. And now we're going to turn it over to TJ. Hi,
3: Dennis. I have just thought of so many questions and so many things that I thought you could inform our listeners about. Um, One of the things, and I think Rory just did a great job on the what the hell segment, um, sort of encapsulating it. I found it interesting, and I think it should sort of be noted, that you mentioned during the early adoption efforts um, that were started by the racing community themselves Um, That There was a segment of the population, uh, a a segment of activists who were working against um, actually seeing greyhounds as pets. Uh, That, that to me, has a great and sad irony to it um, that probably should be noted and maybe delved into a little bit more by the general public, but... Going back to something you said about the greyhounds and, and their lives and understanding the differences that once you bring a greyhound home, what, what those differences can be and how that can affect the dog or dogs, uh, depending, as, as many people may well know and for those that don't, it, it's very hard to keep just one greyhound in your house unless you have <laughs> rules to go by that prohibit any more. Uh, We tend to call that chipping, uh, as in the potato chips. But could you go just a little bit, Dennis, into sort of what does happen in a racing kennel so that someone who's considering adopting a greyhound might understand that routine just a little bit more and that might help the transition actually a little bit more?
4: Well... First thing you have to know about a racing kennel and greyhounds in the racing kennel is that everything is done on a highly regimented, punctual basis. Day in, day out, nothing changes. So when you get into the kennel, five thirty, five o'clock, 6 o'clock, whatever time you get in, first thing you do is you have to ch- turn all the dogs out. And then at some point, either during that turnout, one of the people would, might stay in and do the beds that means replacing any wet beds taking the beds out of the crates fluffing them up or replacing them sweeping the crates out spraying the crate down with disinfectant or what I used to use was citronella oil to, to make sure there were no bugs coming in there into the crates but at any rate uh, that's you know it takes at least an hour to do and the dogs are turned out and you're watching the dogs as the trainer then You want to see that they're not having any problems urinating or uh, expelling waste. You want to make sure that the stools are not loose or runny, that everybody's uh, regular and not experiencing any problems. You want to make sure when the dogs are walking around, you're watching the dogs to make sure none of them are lame, and you're pulling their hides to make sure they're hydrated properly. And... Once that's done, they come in, and normally then you're going to either go to morning schooling, which is practice racing, which uh, is informal and done at the track, and the dogs go behind the lure, or you're going to take the dogs to sprint or on walks, depending on what is on the schedule for that day and how you set it up, and you may uh, have one or two people going to the track with dogs to school or to sprint, or and you may have somebody staying back to walk dogs. You may have somebody doing whirlpool baths, depending on your setup and what equipment you have. And at that point, you're waiting till about nine o'clock, and then you do a second mass turnout. And again. Uh, there's, there's maintenance to be done. Generally, on second turnout, we would go through the water buckets and clean the water buckets and replace the water. And, you know, there are, if there are 50 dogs in the kennel, there are 50 water buckets. You have to replace the water in, empty out, clean out, and then put fresh water in. And after that turnout, they come back in, and then it's time to go over the racers. The Last night's racers have to be checked to make sure that they didn't get injured. That they, You didn't miss anything, a cut, a shelled nail, uh, a sore muscle, uh, a stress fracture, anything. But you take the dogs and you inspect each dog that ran the previous night. You inspect them. You put them on the grooming bench. You clean their nails. You file their nails down or clip their nails if they need clipping. If they got roughed up on the track, you file them down and smooth them out. And you maybe probably rub. Well, I would always rub them down or them a whirlpool bath if they were sore, or if they just liked a whirlpool bath, and if I had the time that day, I would uh, do as many as I could, and at that point, uh, after that's done, and that takes quite a bit of time, you're you're looking at noon, 1230, unless you're one of these people who has to get out of the kennel early, I never cared about getting out of the kennel early, and at that point... you. Do another quick turnout. I would always do another quick turnout, get them all out, let them pee because you're going to go away now and let them rest for a while because they've been up watching all the activity that's going on in the kennel and barking and acting crazy. And so at that point, do a quick turnout, bring them back in, and you wait till about 3 o'clock. And in the day, my day, when they didn't run matinees, this was uh, before the matinee came about, we would feed in the afternoon. So at about 3 o'clock, you'd go back to the kennel, and you'd do another turnout, and then you'd mix up the feed, then you'd feed everybody, and then let them out one more time after they ate. You want them to, you know, they're probably, a lot of them are going to have to go after they eat, so you let them out again, bring them back in, and then it's time to weigh in the night's racers and get everybody ready. Get, you've already put the racing muscles out, and you start to load everybody into the truck, Probably about six o'clock, six five thirty, depending on when weigh-in time is at your track. You load them up, you bring them to the track, and then you weigh them in, and then you have official schoolers. You get them, you bring them back to the kennel after they're done, and then it's time to go back to the track. You go back to the track, you pick up your racers, you watch the racers, you pay strict attention to how your greyhounds run because you, you have to know how they're doing and you have to observe what happens to them when they race. And if there's a problem, you'll be able to tell, usually by the way the dog performs. And at that point, it's about 9 o'clock. Hopefully, you have somebody back at the kennel doing a 9 o'clock, 9.30 turnout, and you can stay at the track. If not, you have to go back to the kennel, throw everybody out again, Bring them back in, put them up, and then go back to the track and pick up the rest of your night's racers. And if you were by yourself that night, then usually if there was a dog that was racing there and you weren't going to be there to pick them up, one of your friends will pick them up for you. I mean, people cooperate like that all the time at the track. And then when you get done with the night's racing, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, whenever it is, you go back to the kennel and I would always, then you feed the racers that night. And then I would always do a quick turnout, let everybody out one more time, just so they don't have to hold it at night. And then after they all come in, then you turn out your racers again and bring them back in. And the day ends. You shut off the lights. You say goodnight to everybody. You give them their snacks, whatever it is. And they uh, settle in because they know the routine and they know you'll be back in the morning. And that's pretty much how it goes day in and day out. There's no getting away from it. There's no shortcuts to it. If you do it that way or you... uh, they, you know, you suffer the
2: consequences. And, and that's another thing that people can observe. If you were, I know, like at Tucson Greyhound Park, you could have stood on the outside and observed this. And the people like to, these people who know nothing about a racing greyhound, much less how to properly take care of one, they like to say these dogs are in, are locked up for 20 to 23 hours a day. It, oh, that's nonsense. That's yeah, nonsense. That's
3: nonsense. Rubbish. That
2: was exactly and what I was, They uh, did the
4: FitBit, uh, the Fitback thing with the Greyhound. Do you remember, uh, the, uh... Yeah. The, the Greyhound bark uh, thing that they did. They did, uh, they put a, uh, what, what, what is, uh, uh, what is essentially a FitBit on a Greyhound. <laughs> uh, and the, uh... They, uh you know they they were able to track the greyhound's steps and it was remarkable how active the dog was they did it was uh, every every day i think the, the, the greyhound did 6 or 7 miles wow just you know back and forth in the kennel out playing with the with his friends and his kennel mates it was it was crazy the uh mm-hmm. i mean the, it, dogs are going to sleep uh, greyhounds are going to sleep 12 16 hours a day anyway so the question is, how much awake time do they actually spend in their crates? And that's maybe a couple hours a day, couple maybe three, four hours a day. If they're just on R&R, or maybe they don't do anything, they're just resting. Or if they're injured and you don't want them to be too active. But, I mean, basically, they're, they're very active dogs. They don't get those muscles and, you know, the big, wide backs and longitudinal muscles on their back by by laying around eating Doritos.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And that was uh, sort of Dennis where I was going with that. Um, You know, and some of the listeners know, uh, that I happen to come from an adoption group that does have a a kennel inside of a track compound and I personally have not only worked most of those things you said. Uh, That's 85% of the things you said, but I've also seen the remaining 15%, 20% done inside the compound with the active racers. And there is logic needs to kick in. Yep. And no one or anything, any living being can be as fit as these dogs with 23 hours a day of confinement, as they like to say, occurs. It's just not possible, and we're we're pretty confident that most of our listeners have the that ability to be logical and to have common sense kick in. So we wanted everyone to hear the routine, (sighs) what they actually did, and also to get a little bit of an appreciation for what. A greyhound trainer does because, and even the breeders on the farms, this is a never ending thing. You don't take Christmas morning off because you want to spend it opening presents from family or Santa Claus or whatever. There are still dogs that are needing their care the same as they do every other day. And it's a very important thing for people to understand that these these greyhounds are in a routine, they get what's best for them, they get what keeps them sound, and they're so well-adjusted because of their past, not in spite of their past. So I I do want to thank you for saying that and stating exactly what everyone needed to hear.
4: Well, it's it's very true. I mean, dogs are a reflection of... Their genetics, their upbringing, their experiences, their environment, and their handling. It's, I mean, that's, everybody knows that. It's a common sense thing. And, except, according to the activists, except for the Greyhound, apparently, they're, they're the exception to the rule. At any rate, uh, uh, to get back to the fit bark, the greyhound who wore the fit bark was active between 9.5 and 11 hours a day Wow! with a 98% health index and 88% sleep score. And like a typical racing greyhound, she averaged over four miles a day even when not racing or practicing.
2: That is amazing. And just walking around doing his thing. And that, that's amazing. That's why I probably I'm not fit, because I, I'm, I'm probably... Sitting on the couch eating Doritos. Right. But, uh, hey, hey, Dennis. Eat burritos. You? <laughs> hey, Dennis. Doritos and
1: playing poker. Hello. Hey, Dennis, we have a caller on the line for you. This oh, is, boy. Yeah, this is John from Atlanta.
4: Hello, hey. Dennis. <laughs> I think I know who this is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you just can't stay away, can you, John?
6: <laughs> that's right. I... I, I figured since you have a call-in number, somebody uh, might as
2: well use it.
1: There you go. Well, thank you. Well, listen, um, you and well, Dennis. Hello, John.
2: <laughs> Hi there. And this was not set up.
1: No, 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 actually. So what?
6: Uh... No, I, uh, completely spontaneous. I did it on, on the uh, as a lark, but I also wanted to say hello to Dennis. I, I've known Dennis for easily ten, maybe twenty years, and yeah. uh, I've never well, actually spoken off, with him. Right. Uh, And I've never heard his voice. We've always communicated either through social media or by private email or uh, private messages on Facebook. So, Dennis, it's great to finally hear your voice. I had no idea that you spoke with a New York accent. (laughs) I always think of you as a Massachusetts guy.
4: Well, I I am by indoctrination at this point. Yeah, right.
6: Right. Well... It's great that you could be on the show and, and lend your, uh, uh, your experience. And, and for those of, for listeners that don't know, Dennis is one of the best Greyhound writers around. His essays are fantastic. And he writes not only about you know, Greyhound culture and, and how racing impacts the, the, the Greyhound as a breed, but um, about his own history with various Greyhounds that he's like. And, Dennis, in that regard, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, with a question, and I want you to test since you're something something of a Greyhound historian as well as a Greyhound essayist. Tell us who you think the greatest racing Greyhound who ever lived was. Well,
4: uh, whoever lived, I think you, you, if we talk about American Greyhounds, I think the most accomplished Greyhound was Real Huntsman. I mean, he did everything you could possibly ask him. He won every race, he won every match race, and he won the American Derby twice, which was. You know, the, it was the Breeders' Cup classic of greyhound racing at the time. So uh, I would have to say him, but the greatest greyhound I ever saw was Westy Wizard. Not only was he a great greyhound on the track, but he was an, an unbelievable sire. I mean, his impact on a breed is just indelible at this point. It's just phenomenal. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, Downing was the greatest greyhound, or Case Flack was the greatest greyhound. Uh, Westy Wizard was Downey's Grandsire and uh, That'll give you an idea of the kind of impact He had and then Downey himself went on to be A great sire so while Downey may have been the fastest greyhound At the time in in his era uh, I I think When you sum it all up And and on the NGA poll I voted for Westy Wizard as the greatest And I'll Stick by that
6: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good make a pretty good case for He was him.
4: something else, I'll tell you. Yeah, I mean, people, he was as popular around here as anybody on the Red Sox or anybody on the Patriots. I mean, he was just, uh, uh, you'd go into the candy store or to get a newspaper and they oh, the Wizard's running tonight. Are oh, you going to the track tonight? Yeah, yeah, I'll go on the track tonight. The Wizard's running tonight. And uh, you'd hear people saying, of uh, course, the Wizard was uh, going to run. And uh, he was as reliable as the uh, sun coming up in the morning. He would just win, 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 race after race. He was he was an unbelievable dog. Uh, and he could do it at two distances. He could hold his his speed for three-eighths of a mile. And as a sire, well, he was just phenomenal. I mean, it, it, the impact he's had is just unbelievable. I mean, you look in a pedigree now, and you see 25 crosses of Westy Wizard in a 12-generation pedigree. You know, it's just amazing. So... Uh, that's about all I have to say on that subject. The, the dogs today, as we know, are probably faster than the dogs of yesteryear. I mean, the best dogs today are are, are unbelievably fast compared to what they were, you know, 40, 50 years ago. But um, everything's relatively... Yeah, you know, people get in the Hall of Fame, you know, in the baseball Hall of Fame, in the football Hall of Fame, by the way they uh, performed against their peers. We don't judge them by the way they might have performed against people uh, 25 years earlier or 25 years later. They uh, they they are judged by how they performed in relation to their peers. And I would say, you know, I have to go with Westy Wizard.
2: Wow,
4: I love that dog.
6: <laughs> Well, it's well, actually—I'm sure it's a subject for a, a, another show someday. But oh. um, I, it would be really nice if we had greyhounds known like that today. I yeah. think that would be a big, a big yeah, help to racing nice. if we had some canine sports heroes that everybody knew and talked about. You know, I was—yeah, yeah.
4: It was—it was—it was, was a different uh, era. You know, it was uh, greyhounds were incredibly popular. In this, and this—this is a uh, a uh, a. Uh, hotbed. It was a hotbed of greyhound activity and greyhound breeding. And, uh, you know, everybody in the area knew somebody who bred greyhounds or had owned greyhounds or had trained greyhounds. And uh, it was, uh, you know, you were a respected member of the community in those days when you were involved with greyhound racing and, you know, a a, a valued contributor to the local economy. And uh, that all ended. Yeah, and and you, I you, can't you, think yeah. that, uh, that it's been good for the Greyhounds.
2: Right. And, you know, Dennis, you well, had said earlier. I totally agree with oh. that, Dennis. Yeah. You, you had mentioned earlier. I was
3: just going to say that, that Roy and I are trying to speak <laughs> at the same time. You go ahead. <laughs> Ladies <laughs> first. Ladies first,
2: or I'll spank um, you.
3: <laughs> I just wanted to say one quick thing. Um, that was part of the experience that I had in Abilene um, when I first started going there. And I'm ashamed to say and, and probably should be punished for this that I had never been to Abilene, Kansas, uh, until about two years ago. And one of the first places I went was to the Greyhound Hall of Fame. So um, for anyone that would like to see some of the, the prominent greyhounds throughout history, here, especially here in the United States, um, and, and some of the, the great pioneers of uh, racing and adoption, uh, and I will throw adoption in there because... Many of the, uh, the great people in ra- the racing industry were making efforts into adoption, but please stop by the Hall of Fame in, in Abilene. It's truly an experience uh, that any greyhound would want to have. And I think um, any breed lover or any dog lover would actually enjoy going and, and doing something like that and doing a, a tour of the, the Hall of Fame. Exactly. And with that, I will hand it back over to Rory so that he can finish his thoughts.
2: <laughs> well, no, I was just going to mention, Dennis had brought up that the in Boston uh, there used to be a lot of uh, stories about the Greyhounds, and I actually have copies of a lot of the stories that had been in the in the newspaper in the Boston area. Uh, uh, Joan Isle had one point in time, I guess, needed to clean up some of her paperwork that she had. And had turned over a lot of that. And there's one, I've still got to take it off and get it framed about, I think there was like five different greyhounds that they were talking about and the importance of them and their pedigree. And um, you, you just and you just mentioned going to the Hall of Fame. Before going there, look up your own greyhound's pedigree and you'll, you're going to find your dogs probably is related to somebody there in the Hall of Fame.
1: And probably the easiest way to do that would be go to go to uh, greyhounddata.com.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is... It's remarkable some of these greyhounds that, from the history and just to, to go learn about them and what they what they mean to the greyhounds. And I know Dennis, you had also mentioned about the the, the kennels. A lot of people do not understand. I know in Arizona the kennels, when they were open, the farm um, they pretty much could provide seven thousand dollars a week in just their are buying feed, taxes and labor. This was a contributing a major contributor to a, various states economies and we just let these activists um, screw it up
4: yes that's uh that's pretty much what they did and uh, you know it It was always seen as oh, it was a passing fad they'll go away they you know they'll, they'll get tired of this and nobody reacted uh as the way they should have reacted when when it began and you know the you know the greyhounds are paying the price now, and the the people who want to adopt greyhounds and can't get them are paying the price, and it's it's a shame because what we see now is we see the uh, the the population is slowly withering away. The bloodlines are going to be there are going to be crucial strains and bloodlines and entire families of greyhounds that just disappear yeah. because nobody's going to breed them because the breeding is concentrated into such a small group of uh, breeders. I think. The- Last time I, I looked, there were 783 NGA members. Wow. And I mean, that's just unbelievable. I mean, how small the NGA is right now. And unfortunately, that's not a good thing for the greyhound population or for the greyhound breed because the, once you lose those bloodlines, once you lose that female DNA, mitochondrial DNA,
2: it's gone forever. Yeah, it's, and that's sad. There, there's several lines here in Arizona that are no longer available to anyone. And I know um, since we're coming up on the close to the end of the show, I think, I, I know the listeners will agree with us right now, we're going to have to get Dennis back on this show, don't, don't you think? Woohoo! yes, sir. Uh, cause, you know, I
3: absolutely think so because he brought up just another subject, uh, <laughs> advocacy by extinction, yep. that I think we needed to, to touch on further.
1: Don't let Parker hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we shut his mic off long ago. So, <laughs> no, actually, probably all of you.
2: Yeah, would be a
1: great show. Um, I,
2: I think we're we need have to plan to do that, that. We, because I want to even get into the, the into the food. Um, so for our all of our listeners, tune in next week for another episode of Greyhounds Make Great Pets, and we will be back.
1: We'd like to thank Dennis for joining us. Thank you, TJ. Tank thank you, Rory, and
2: hug the hounds of the world
0: thank you for listening this week to greyhounds make great pets please join your hosts rory gore tj beater and kathy gore for another edition of our program next friday at 1 p.m eastern time and 10 a.m pacific time on the voice america variety channel have a
1: wonderful week